Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday morning, the 29th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The House of Commons will debate how the UK will leave the European Union or if the UK will leave on the 29th of March when MPs vote this evening on amendments to Theresa May's Brexit deal. There have been many important stages in this process and some commentators contend this is one of the most important days yet in terms of coming to a decision. Two of the amendments tabled are getting most traction, one of those by Labour's Yvette Cooper, which allows MPs instruct the government to postpone Brexit by nine months if Mrs May fails to win support on a deal by the 26th of this month. Let's talk about all of this with Sean Defoe, our political correspondent who's on the line. And a very good morning to you, Sean. Thanks for joining us. Uh, The other amendment uh, that is getting a, a lot of attention is one put forward by Sir Graeme Brady, the chairman of the Backbench 1922 Committee of Conservative MPs. And this proposes replacing the backstop and it appears to have the support of Theresa May and she's instructed Conservative Tory MPs to back this proposal. That's right, yeah. It has gained a lot of traction over the last few days, as you mentioned. But it is a very, very ambiguous amendment. Now, Theresa May came out last night and said, yes, she wants her Conservative MPs to back it. Then we've heard from Jacob Rees-Mogg and his uh, ERG MPs say that that amendment doesn't go far out because it doesn't actually reopen the withdrawal text at all. What essentially it would do is uh, it would instruct the government to remove the backstop from the withdrawal agreement to be replaced with alternative arrangements but it doesn't say what those alternative arrangements are and anyone who's been interviewed over the mm. past few days doesn't seem to have a clue what those ideas are so the idea behind it politically is to give Theresa May a bit more clout when she goes talking to Brussels again to say well look my parliament's completely rejected the backstop you need to give us an alternative arrangement because uh, on many fronts it seems as though a lot of MPs don't have an idea what that should be. Well that's no surprise though is it because nobody's been able to find an alternative arrangement and the backstop in itself is an arrangement which will ensure that there won't be a hard border on the island of Ireland unless or until an alternative can be found and that isn't the case so uh, the idea of having an alternative arrangement to the hard border means reopening the negotiations Europe says it won't do that 
which it won't do. It's almost like trying to have an alternative to the alternative that you already arranged and what Europe and the <laughs> Irish government have been saying is, well, look, mm. we, we designed this backstop around your red lines. This is put, you know, you asked for a review clause in it. We gave you that. We You asked for other things and we gave you that. This is our idea of how we avoid a backstop. So you need to come up with another one and they can't. So they're trying to kick the, pr- the pressure and the, the idea generation, I suppose, back onto to Brussels and onto the Irish government. But you can imagine if this does pass tonight and if Therese, Theresa May goes back to Michel Barnier and is sitting around the table saying, we want alternative arrangements. And Barnier is going to ask, well, what are those alternative arrangements? And so far, no one has the answer to that. Mm, and what does this say about uh, Theresa May's integrity in terms of how the 27 European countries may view her? Well, she's done a complete 180, really, on the commitment to the backstop. And this has been what we've seen from Theresa May fairly consistently. She initially went over in December 2017 and agreed to the backstop in the deal and then went back and found out her MPs weren't happy with that. So she said, I'm going to go back and renegotiate this and get rid of the backstop back to Brussels. She got back to Brussels and then re-agreed to the backstop and then mm-hmm. eventually had her government sign up to it and is now getting her MPs to support something that tries to get rid of the thing that she signed up to in the first place, which is just utterly bizarre negotiating, and I think probably sums up quite a bit of the mess that we found ourselves in because there is no particular leadership. Everyone wants the mm. same goal, interestingly, on all the sides. Dublin, Brussels, London, mm. they all want to avoid a hard border and not to return to that and for the UK to have some sort of an orderly exit from the EU. But other than the withdrawal deal that the Dublin and Brussels are behind and a foot on the table. There's no other mechanism for doing that that, that can get agreement in the UK at the moment. But if she goes back and says uh, she wants uh, to renegotiate something that she's committed to, surely people are going to say to her, you're not very trustworthy. Well, you would have to think, I mean, if you have, they have already agreed to this. Now, the balance of numbers in the Parliament doesn't mm. give her some latitude on that. She obviously doesn't have control of it in the same way our government here doesn't have control of the door. She's reliant on the DUP and she's reliant on the Brexiteer faction within her own party to get any sort of a vote through. So mm. she can go and say, look, you don't want to hire Brexit and I don't, but you need to give me something more here. Okay. I can't get by with what's there. Well, well then maybe she was misunderstood. Let's remember two words, bulletproof. Well, that's certainly what, uh, and the, the more time goes on, what the Taoiseach pontificated when he initially came back with this deal of a bulletproof backstop, it's far from bulletproof, uh, mm. as we've seen. And, you know, if we if we keep going down this line, we could find a situation in March where we're up a certain creek without a backstop. You know, it might be great. <laughs> Uh, do you think that this is a case of brinkmanship? Uh, we heard a strong message come back from Europe yesterday that this would, in effect, mean reopening negotiations and the negotiations have closed. It's not possible to reopen them. Yeah, but that's what they've been saying for months as well. You know, there were some small cracks in the veneer in last week when we heard from the European Commission spokesperson that, you know, an event of no deal, there will have to be a hard border where we heard Shane Ross's overheard conversation and when the Taoiseach obviously decided to change tack now by openly talking about a hard border Mm. and what that would mean. It's a strategy that the government, there was almost a ban on them appearing on any UK media and a ban on talking about that. They were just saying we're not preparing for for a hard border. So that kind of changed and there was Mm. almost cracks last week in the Dublin and Brussels side, but they very much seem to have got their message on point. Now, any ministers who've been out in the last few days, any of the European spokespeople who've been out in the last few days have been saying, no, withdrawal agreement can't be reopened, backstop is sacrosanct, unless you show us something else 
that does the same as the backstop, which no one has been able to do at the mm. moment, and we will be standing by Ireland. So that message has been very clear, and it's very hard to see mm. what could shift. Now, to be fair to the Taoiseach and his comments in Davos, he did say he's open to listening to ideas. Mm. So if someone can come up with a method by which we achieve the same results as the backstop without actually doing it, and that might be having something that's very similar to the backstop, you just change the wording to make it politically safe, we don't really know yet because no one's put that on the table. So there isn't a total reticence to actually do a bit of business here. It's just that the idea that would actually work isn't there. The timing of uh, the Taoiseach's comments may be questionable, but what he said were really common sense comments uh, in that uh, we've all lived through this. We know what a hard border means. If we go back to a hard border, it means customs checks. It means police. It means army personnel. It means targets for people who don't like these things. Things, and it means that there is a, a risk to the peace process. Yeah, well, really a lot of the criticism that had come on Leo Varadkar was because the government had insisted we're not preparing for a hard border, we're not preparing. And as the closer we get to the cliff here, the, mm. the potential no deal Brexit, more people are saying, well, is it not very, very irresponsible to not prepare? So even though that's still their line, I imagine mm. somewhere deep in the bells of Merrion Street, there is some sort of a, a plan being formulated for what would have to happen. But that is what it will look like. And unfortunately, that's what the Taoiseach painted out is the very stark reality. It's a return to a past that no one wants to go back to. And in many ways, it was probably designed to putting a bit of pressure back onto London by yeah. saying, look, this is what will happen. This is the reality. And if you can't come up with some sort of a deal, then this is what we're going to return to. But equally then... Many of the Brexiteers are saying, well, you also don't want to return to that, so come up with the idea for us. Yeah, you know, that's it, a, a logical argument you're making, Sean, but uh, I mean, if you're right, uh, well, then surely it follows uh, that if uh, the government made a, a mistake in not preparing for a hard border, it was because it was naive enough to trust Theresa May. Uh, and Perhaps uh, you should be in a position to trust a uh, 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 prime minister uh, when she makes a commitment to the extent that she did. And she said that she would ensure that there would be no border on the island of Ireland. But I think the whole problem that we're at at the moment in the impasse is because it's precisely because mm. they don't want to have to trust the UK and solely rely on trust. If we were just going to trust what the British Prime Minister said, which maybe you could do in days gone by, then mm. there wouldn't really be any need for a backstop because well, we uh, could all be happy and say, you know, OK, there's not going to be a hard border and we'll all trade no matter what happens. But mm. unfortunately, you can't just rely on words these days. And it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because that argument works both ways. Uh, if uh, there was the trust in place that a deal could be reached between the United Kingdom uh, and uh, the rest of Europe, a trade deal in time uh, as part of the future relationship agreement, well then there'd be no concern about a backstop because it would be necessary, it would never be used and that's the argument the Irish government has been making. Yeah, and even if, I mean, the backstop is only meant to last for uh, up until 2021, that would be the expiry date, you know, the, the kind of two-year period then mm-hmm. we have also to negotiate the trade deal. But then some people have been, have been mentioning a five-year backstop, which you would think, well, surely to God they've managed to knock out a trade deal in five years, and yet still that's not been acceptable because we've seen some of the way these things go. We've seen mm-hmm. the trade deal with Canada, for example, that was negotiated that took the bones of 10 years. We've seen some of the other ones, you know. So, mm. Well, the backstop just, would be indefinite if a deal wasn't reached, uh, and that's well, the I point, isn't it? We're talking about putting a, a time limit on it. Sure. Yeah. Some yeah. of the suggestions mm-hmm. from the UK is to, to time it. At the moment, it would mm. be indefinite. Um, but even, you know, that time limit of five years that has been suggested, or a five-year rolling backstop that you would re- review it after five years has been rejected with, with some sense in the EU saying mm. it's like taking out insurance for five years and then 
something goes wrong in the sixth year, you're you're not covered. So it's a very, very tricky one to find if there's any middle ground on this. And I, someone, you know, Simon Coveney's denying it's a blinking contest. It absolutely is a blinking contest to see who is going to back down on some of their red lines first. And why won't they pause it? Why is Yvette Cooper's amendment set to fail? Or at least that seems to be the inside word. Yeah, it seems set to fail, although there's a lot of people, a lot of MPs who are talking this up now, listening to certainly some of the Labour ones who were behind this this morning, saying it's the one that would make the most sense, that if there was no deal by the end of February and we're facing into no deal, that that would just be taken off the table by kicking it down the road another nine months. But even if that didn't get support in the House of Commons, there's no guarantee the EU would sign up to it, because certainly what a lot of people in the mm. EU are saying is this if you want to have another six or nine months, we can't have another six or nine months like this has been because it's slowing everything down. A lot of other countries are getting very, very frustrated at this because they don't really care all that much about Brexit. Mm. Sure, they want to look after Ireland and they know it's important, but for a lot of the other countries in the EU, it's immigration, it's Russia, it's some of the other big issues, and they actually want to get to dealing with that, not have another nine months tied up uh, in this Brexit fallacy as it is at the moment. So even if it was agreed, there's no 100% guarantee what the EU has said is we'd be happy to extend it if there is a clear sign in that time a deal will be reached. But that isn't there at the moment either. OK, well, we've just been speaking about two of the 14 amendments that have been tabled. It's probable that both of those amendments will be debated and voted on this evening, but nothing is definite because it's uh, the Speaker of the House who will decide which amendments will be voted on. Uh, and uh, there's the possibility that there'll be a, a lot of votes uh, because uh, one of the amendments looks uh, for indicative votes uh, that MPs would highlight uh, how they uh, would vote on certain proposals indicate uh, their intentions whether that would be one of these uh, Canadian type deals or Norway plus or whichever it was. Yeah exactly this is one that I suppose on paper seems to make a lot of sense you would have all the all the options laid out for the MPs so you know kick out article 50 have a second referendum bin the backstop whatever it is all Mm -hmm. of those and then MPs would vote on each one in a non-binding way so at least then you would have an idea of what the House of Commons can support. Now doesn't look as though that's getting a huge amount of traction and support in the UK, and I kind of have a feeling if that was, we would just find out what a lot of us suspect is that none of them has an overall support to actually go forward, which would then land everything in even more of a muddle and possibly then shift things towards the talk of either a second referendum or delay Brexit for another six or nine months. But uh, if that does get selected, it will be interesting to see if it does, because it would be a very clear indication from MPs of their voting intent and whether there's any deal that's out there at the moment that they could support. All right, well, it could be a long night, it could be an important night, it could be a decisive night, and the whole thing could end up being uh, a waste of time all over again. <laughs> but uh, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, and no doubt we'll be back scratching our heads uh, over it all again tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sean. Thank you. Uh, Sean Defoe, our political correspondent. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, perhaps we'll continue on with uh, the Brexit discussion and issues relating to it with Fianna Fáil TD for Louth, Declan Brannock, who's on the line. Before uh, we get into those issues, uh, perhaps you'd outline to our listeners some of uh, the complaints you've been hearing from local people uh, in relation to bogus calls they've been receiving. Uh, Thank you, Michael, for the opportunity. Yes, uh, my office... Uh, from time to time gets a number of calls over you know a period of time then it stops in relation to these bogus or scam calls you know and they take many forms and and i suppose my message to people out there who are listening and particularly older people who find maybe difficulty with you know the issue of 
handling modern technology is vigilance. Uh, and my strong advice is that not to return a call to any unknown international numbers for because the firstly they're costly and the scammers are actually taking money out of your account while making you're making calls. Don't ask me how to do it because I'm I'm not technically orientated myself. But I suppose the key issue here is that a lot of the numbers that are being received by people look like either an international call or indeed some of the numbers look like a mobile number. And I suppose particularly elderly out there they need to be aware of probably what their friends' numbers are, particularly those who are abroad. Don't take a call that is a, is from a number that you're not expecting it. And equally, don't return a call. Don't answer persistent calls. Mm. Because the bottom line here is that there are too many people out there who are looking to take uh, to scam, either by, by, by delaying you on the line in relation to even if you have a mobile number, but equally trying to get information from you, uh, whether it's about you know coming, uh, some of the calls are more recently allegedly coming from air, and I don't mind saying that. There, there's no way of identifying a scam call number, but make sure that if you're not comfortable and don't really know the person, which you, you, you shouldn't be unsolicited, and just simply say to people you're not interested, but certainly more importantly, not to give any personal information, such as your banking details, no bank will look for that, your PPS number, your credit card, um, and maybe if I just, Michael, could mm. give a, an example of a, a more recent one um, that, ha- that happened where they got they, the person got to know that the individual they were trying to scam had both a landline and a mobile number, and they got the person to hang up on the landline or appearing to hang up well, they got them to ring a bank with their personal details and PIN numbers and everything else. Believe it or not, the landline was still active so that they were hearing the individual making the call to the bank on their mobile number, giving the details, but yet listening in on what appeared to be a hung-up call on the landline. Right. The, other, the other type of things that people... Uh, um, how much have people been losing in these scams? Well, in, in that particular case that I dealt with, uh, it was over 5,000 taken oh out, out, mm. out of accounts. Now, that's a very sophisticated scam. But the bottom line is vigilance and that people out there, and particularly elderly, but it doesn't necessarily apply to elderly people, people uh, you know, become so, I suppose, bound up on these, these professionals who can sweet-talk their way. You don't have to speak to anybody on the, on the other end of the line who you don't know. And my honest answer to people is if you get a call from somebody, you know, whether they're representing the local authority, even at a door, as we know, where the scams also go on, is tell them, go away, write to me. All right. Well, uh, the uh, merger between Fianna Fáil and the SDLP has uh, finally taken place, and that is uh, one of uh, the reasons you're with us uh, this morning. Uh, this is uh, really two parties from the past uh, who are trying to rejuvenate themselves. Uh, but uh, is there any real possibility of that, given the lack of support for both parties at this stage? Uh, firstly, I don't think you're correct, Michael, in saying that it's a merger. Uh, for your listeners out there, uh, it's referred to as a partnership a beginning where we will try to form policy on an all-Ireland basis to, to uh, break this vacuum that exists and division 
that has failed the north of Ireland particularly uh, with you know, the collapse of power sharing in the north, the need for a party to have an all-Ireland policy, not just in the context of Brexit, which your listeners are fed up probably listening to at this stage, mm. but to, to, to get working on an all-Ireland basis on policy. And strangely... On policy? On policy. But not on a, getting people elected? I, I, look, at, uh, the, the SELP will be seeking election in the, in, in the north. Uh, Fianna Fáil will obviously seek election in the south. But we will work on collective policies and develop policies that are in the best interest of that island for all that we talk about. There's one thing... And wh- why is it that Fianna Fáil members will not be seeking election in Northern Ireland? Uh, well, you know, I would have a personal view on that, but I'm sure there's been a lot of polling done well, tell us uh, what your personal view is. Uh, well, my own personal view is that uh, we have enough difficulty uh, trying to, to run organisations south uh, that a liaison or partnership will be an initial step and that on a personal basis I would like to think that in the long term that we can have a 32-county party, but I think we have to take small steps. Uh, the one thing that your listeners out there, I hope, uh, realise, and I think they do, that, that we have, we're celebrating 100 years of Dáil Éireann, mm. and that 100 years, indeed, whether it's north or south, has taught us, uh, and I'm going to quote Colin... Is Fianna Fáil really interested in Northern no, Ireland? We're better to live for Ireland than to die for Ireland. Uh, yeah, but it, it, what do you mean by Ireland? Is that the 26 counties or the no. 32 counties? Because Fianna Fáil isn't really interested in Northern Ireland, is it? Well, uh, I certainly can say that they are, and I can say this... Well, well, you've do, well you, you, your, your party's leader sacked two of your senior members, Mark Daly and Eamon O'Queeve, when they tried to run candidates in Northern Ireland? Uh, because they weren't operating on behalf of the Fianna Fáil organisation. Yeah, so, uh, so, so, so that then forced the Fianna Fáil organisation to respond in this wishy-washy, vague way. Uh, I wouldn't agree with you at all. I, th- I think the response that has been created here is uh, a much deeper and longer response that will develop policies on an all-Ireland basis. That I'll be talking to Padder Tobin in uh, a few minutes' time and uh, he's managed to establish six common uh, in Northern Ireland, a party that hasn't been established yet. How many has Fianna Fáil got? Uh, Fianna Fáil has extensive relationships uh, you, with, with you don't, many people. You don't have any presence. You've got an agreement uh, now with the, the SELP uh, which has no MPs, uh, which uh, has no Assembly members because there is no Assembly, which is a party of the past, very like Fianna Fáil. And as I said uh, at the beginning, two parties trying to rejuvenate yourselves by this, uh, what would you call a publicity stunt? Uh, well, I want to say it's not a publicity stunt. It's not really much else, is it? Well, you know, as somebody who has lived the border, walked the border and done politics of the border, I want to say to you that the relationships that have been developed within the SDLP, whether it's with Justin McNulty or Sinead Bradley of the SDLP as MLAs, that relationship that I have developed, the actual MOU that I often refer to, the Memorandum of Understanding between URI, now Down Council and Low County Council, that is the type of small step that needs to be made on a major basis and the SDLP and Fianna Fáil will act collaboratively. We will be setting up a series of meetings over the next period of time in relation to the, 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 the various areas, whether it's economic development, whether it's Brexit, whether it's developing all Ireland health policies. And indeed, I suppose the most important thing here is uniting Ireland's people. What about uniting Fianna Fáil? Well, I think we're a very... Was it wrong to sack Mark Daly? 
Mark Daly wasn't sacked. He was Mark sacked. Daly, was it was wrong to sack Eamon O'Keefe? Uh, not sacked either. He simply was demoted. And uh, well, was uh, it wrong to do that? Uh, because yes, uh, what happened was outside of the, the Fianna Fáil policy that was emerging, uh, and uh, in relation to the whole partnership and development of policy approach. Would you endorse Circa McInesby as a, a candidate in the elections, in the local elections? Uh, I most certainly will if she's an SDLP candidate. Uh, uh, and we would be supporting the SDLP candidates in the area that she stands and if she chooses. So you agree with Mark Daly, you agree with Eamon O'Keeve, you support the candidate they support, uh, and... Not not what I said at all, Mike. And you you also agree that they should have been sanctioned, whatever about being sacked or whatever word you want to put on it. Uh, I advised uh, in advance of any move by Mark Daly that it was the wrong move, that the party was in discussion and we should wait the outcome of that. Well, I think he'd contend that it was the right move and that it's forced Fianna Fáil into this watery position, uh, which is a little less watery than the position it was in previously, because now you have some sort of a relationship with some sort of a party in the North. Can I assure you, Michael, that Fianna Fáil nor I are watery. Uh, We understand republicanism and we understand the importance of the unity of the island people, uh, the progression of the development of our economy, mm. that in time will lead, in my view, to a United Well, the membership Ireland. does, and maybe that's why Patrick O'Bean's party is appealing to the membership. Well, let's see. Let's see. Uh, the local elections will be a watershed, uh, obviously, particularly in relation to this merger, and, uh, you know, the fallout from Which that. merger? We will see. We, no, I said partnership. You, said <laughs> no, you just said merger. Well, maybe, well, it was, did, maybe it was a Freudian slip. Trying, <laughs> okay. If I did, it's because you're trying to push the word merger. When in fact okay, no, we'll party. accept that. that. That was a slip of the tongue. Fair oh, enough. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. We all do it. Of course we do. Of course we do. I just wanted to check. But, but, but will there be a merger? Uh, it may happen through time. I think that the SDLP uh, sees an opportunity, and so does Fianna Fáil, to develop an all-Ireland approach mm. uh, where we, as I said at the outset, we'll end the political vacuum. vacuum. Uh, we will be able to deal collectively uh, in the lack the lack of representation mm. at Westminster, which the SDLP don't have to help them develop policies mm. that relate to the whole issue of what happens with Brexit, you know, that will help to... Uh, I hope uh, a, a deeper and longer response to what is needed. We've we've been through the mire over the last hundred years in the relation to the issue of United Ireland. What we need to be doing, sorry, Michael. What we need to be doing here is creating that Ireland for all. And the SDLP, okay. its history, whether it's John Hume, whether it's Lamas, mm. uh, uh, the reality here is that these people's legacy live on, and 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 it will be fulfilled through that partnership where we will create a politics that works, uh, provide better public services for an economy, particularly in the north, which is in in, in serious difficulty. But more important, uniting, as I've said, Mm. Ireland's people through economic development, uh, the unity of its people, helping to develop an all-Ireland health policy, education policies, housing policies, and reforming the institutions. Okay, but but I I, I know you would be happy to swear an oath of allegiance uh, to Queen Elizabeth, uh, to the British monarchy, uh, but would you be as happy to do that in a circumstance where we've a no-deal Brexit uh, and we have no... Uh, unity at all with Northern Ireland uh, and that it is in fact a foreign state. Uh, You put words again into my mouth by saying that I would swear an oath of allegiance. I would not and indeed I will 
poo-hoo and dismiss what you've just said because Mark Durkin, the former leader of the SDLP, made it clear that he never signed an oath of allegiance or was required to, that he wrote and explained uh, his, his, his wish not to and it never was an impediment. So I can say to you, without fear or favour, that this is a smokescreen for and particularly from Sinn Féin, who have bottled it in relation to Westminster, have bottled it in relation to the forming of an executive, and Fianna Fáil and SDLP will create that partnership and policy direction that the people, both north and south, will see is a step in the right direction. You know, we all talk okay, about well, baby steps. In the context of a no-deal Brexit, Fianna Fáil MPs in Westminster? Uh, there will be, hopefully... Hopefully, SDLP uh, 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 MPs in Westminster, when people see uh, that the failed policy of the DUP uh, is what's been described the duopoly mm. uh, of what Sinn Féin and the DUP are doing, who are. Well, there's only two parties in Northern Ireland now, isn't there, really? There are two parties yeah. in Northern Ireland who are not re- representing what I call. The often silent majority. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe it's uh, the vocal minority because uh, nobody's voting for the one that uh, you're in favour of. Well, look, time will tell. Okay. I think this is evolving and I think it's an exciting time for people in the North to, to realise that we, we have a party that will have a joint platform in relation to uh, improving our country. Uh, okay. Look, Mike, I know you want to finish the future will not be met by an old and narrow vision of Ireland and our people. We need to think beyond the past and heal the divisions. Hume and Lamas had that uh, philosophy, and I believe that both Michal Martin and Colm would will take the party with them. There's always people, and there are people yeah. out there listening today in the SELP who don't feel it's the right approach. Sure, I know. To that. That and, I, and I wish we had more time. I really don't want to finish, but I have to because yeah. we have a, a very important issue to go to next. Uh, but I have to leave it there. Thank, thank, you, time, th- thank you indeed, as Thank always, you. for joining us here on the programme this morning. Fianna Fáil TD for Louth, Declan Braddock. Michael Reed on LMFM. Many of us know or knew somebody living with uh, dementia and not surprisingly so given that uh, there's an estimated 55,000 people in this country who've been diagnosed with uh, dementia. Many of uh, those people are living alone in the community and many of them are living lonely lives. They themselves quite often feel that this is due to their condition but uh, a new policy position paper called Dementia and Loneliness, which has been published by the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland, says that the experience of loneliness for people living with dementia can be attributed to a lack of supports and services. We're joined by... Uh, I beg your pardon, by Dr. Bernadette Rock, who's Policy and Research Manager with uh, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Good morning to you, and uh, thanks for joining us here this morning, Good morning, morning Michael. It, it's an awful thing, as many people uh, will testify, but there's uh, a spectrum, uh, and I suppose uh, it uh, is uh, worse for some than it is for others, uh, but uh, you've been looking at the lives of people who are living in the community. There's a lot of research uh, that this report is based on, but you've had yeah. face-to-face interviews with with some eight individuals and getting their first-hand experience. Yes, that's right, Michael. So this research undertaken by by UCC um, attempted to explore whether people living with dementia felt socially isolated or or alone as their lives progressed and as their 
and as their condition deteriorated. Mm. As, as they get older were, and their condition worsens, isn't it? Yes, that's mm. right. And these are people um, at home in the community with a diagnosis of dementia. And this study really showed us um, that access to, for example, home care supports, public health nurses, enabled families to manage a life with someone with dementia and by the same token however the difficulties of securing these supports could be a source of anxiety frustration and loneliness and we quite often hear about uh, the difficulty in securing supports of uh, that sort and uh, the support uh, that is made available to the person suffering suffering with dementia leads to greater yes. support because it also educates the family and uh, teaches them uh, about the condition and how to deal with it Of course, and that's so important because we're very aware and, of course, this study also showed that there is such a a powerful stigma surrounding the condition Mm. and and that's quite a challenge for many people. And, of course, that stigma can bring a sense of fear, a sense of anxiety and that's something that tends to be very deeply ingrained in Irish society. So one of the recommendations from from this piece of work is the importance of continued attempts to address the stigma associated with dementia, both at a local and a national level. Uh, And when you say stigma, uh, what do you mean by that? Because uh, I'm sure it's true to say that people are afraid of dementia. It is an awful thing and it's a life-changing thing and you can see somebody's personality change dramatically over a period of time. Uh, but, but, But is it not quite as bad as we perceive? Are we more afraid of what it is than what it actually is? I think that's a very good point and I think I think with that stigma um, people often see the condition or the disease but they mm. don't see the person and it's very important that we recognise that the person with dementia is the same individual they were before the condition. Now, there's They're a, the a, same person. A, a number of recommendations same. that have been made uh, by the researcher Dr Irene Hartigan and one of yes. them uh, is to help people understand dementia, uh, to give communication tips uh, because you may That's see right. that person easier if you're able to communicate with them and if you try to communicate with them as you would with somebody who doesn't have dementia maybe they won't understand. That's a very good point, yes. And so so one of the recommendations from this report is that accessible and simple information is available to to better understand dementia and that and that that information is available to the general public, service providers, health and social care professionals. And also as you suggested to there, Michael, the importance of communication tips and skills relevant to dementia so that we're better able to engage with people even as their condition progresses. And that they're given an opportunity to participate in society themselves, to interact with other people, but they need support to do that. They do, absolutely, yes. But it's so important that that, that people who have a diagnosis of dementia are supported to continue to engage in social activities that they enjoyed doing prior to their mm. diagnosis. So so it's really crucial that their participation and engagement is supported. Otherwise, people with a diagnosis of dementia can often retreat 
into their lives. So they may be a bit unlikely to tell their friends or neighbours that they have the diagnosis because of that stigma often. But that in turn can, I suppose, make a person feel even more lonely and more isolated. Uh, There's obviously the need uh, to establish uh, dementia support groups because uh, the report recommends uh, that people with dementia uh, dementia are given the opportunity to participate in in these groups, but it says these groups need to exist for that to happen. They do, of course, Michael. That's a very good point. And we and the ASI were involved in a mapping exercise quite recently, which mapped all of the dementia services throughout the country. Mm. And we're very, very aware of the importance of dementia support groups. And one of the things we saw in that mapping exercise is that there's quite a discrepancy between different geographical areas and counties. And some areas have such a lack of services like support groups that are really crucial to people with a diagnosis and also to their carers. All right. Well, as I said earlier on, there's uh, many stages on the spectrum uh, and uh, there's uh, many people who have dementia and you wouldn't know it. Uh, There's other people who are uh, long into uh, the condition uh, and uh, it may be very difficult to communicate with them. Is it important to try? Is company important for those people or does it make any difference at that stage? Oh, it's absolutely important. Um, And research also shows that even though people with dementia may not remember, you know, their long-term memories, Mm -hmm. that they still have very good short-term memories. And those connections, those everyday connections are really crucial to to supporting people to continue to engage in society. And, and that's even, really important. Even, even if they don't remember what happened five minutes ago or what their relationship with you is. And actually, that's a very mm. good point, Michael. Very often people assume that people with dementia don't remember, um, you know, conversations maybe five minutes ago or things that happened five minutes ago. But research will show the opposite, that very often they do still have that intact memory. Mm. But not able to communicate it, is it? Often they may not be able to communicate. It can very much depend on the stage of dementia the person is at and also the, and also the specific type of dementia the person has. Okay, well, there's many strong messages in uh, this uh, piece of work for policymakers. Thank you for talking uh, about it with us uh, this morning. It's very important for a lot of people, obviously, Bernadette, and uh, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Bernadette Rock, Policy and Research Manager with uh, the Alzheimer Society of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Some calls already in relation to bogus calls that was raised this morning on the show. Danny and Joe had a phone in to say he got a call this morning at 6.45am from a person asking about his computer that he was going to help fix his computer Mm. however Danny doesn't actually have a computer Uh, in the house mm -hmm. and when he said this the person hung up and he says well he was able to deal with the call he thinks it's terrible that they are targeting people at this hour and maybe targeting people that don't realise it's possibly Mm. a scam and could be caught out by giving details Okay. Margaret phoned in to say that she got a call from a foreign number and didn't answer it but looked up the number subsequently this was yesterday when it it happened on Google and it was from Sierra Leone delighted that I didn't pick up 
says mm, Margaret. Yeah. Paddy from Navin listening into the discussion about scams. He says that he got a call from an international bank, supposedly, to say that a thousand euro had been taken out of his account, but to compensate him, he was going to get two thousand euro back. But first he had to go to the post office, fill out a form and give them €650 Euros, so he'd be getting the 1000 plus compensation. Paddy says he only lives beside his bank so went in with the person still on the phone and handed it over to the bank official mm. who asked who it was and looked for an ID number and they hung up. Yeah. So he says you really could be caught out easily. Yeah, well some of the scams are elaborate and uh, some of uh, the scammers are very convincing. Uh, do do not give anybody your credit card details. Do not send anybody money. Do not do anything without speaking uh, to your bank or whichever financial institution you deal with. Uh, there's an awful lot of it going on. It's very, very convincing. Uh, sometimes they'll pull on your heartstrings. Sometimes they'll tell you to go to Western Union. Sometimes they'll tell you to go into the post office. Uh, just ignore them all if you can. Don't take calls from numbers you don't know. Uh, if it's important, uh, they'll leave a message. Uh, maybe listen to the message, yes. but don't uh, bother calling somebody back, especially especially on these uh, foreign numbers, uh, because quite often they are some scam of one sort or another. Kathleen phoned in, listening into the discussion, and says that it really is a sad reflection of the times that we live in. She says that you're afraid now to answer your door, and and a lot a lot of times you're afraid to answer your phone because you're worried that somebody could be trying to defraud you and she says that it's it's terrible mm. that you can't even trust people who are ringing you anymore. Yeah and sometimes it's just pure badness in that they're not trying to scam you, they'll send you an email which will break your computer or break your phone or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, moving then to your discussion on mm. dementia and Maura phoned in and says that her father has dementia at the moment and as a family they are trying to care for him at home. Very interested in what your guest had to say because I feel it's particularly hard because there is such little support available. She says that her family are managing at the moment but would like to see more in the way of community supports. It can be very isolating not just for the person who has dementia but for the family who in many cases have never dealt with this before. Yeah well maybe an idea to contact uh, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland. Uh, I'm sure they have plenty of advice at hand and we'll try and get that number for you in the next few moments. Okay, well, can I move on to something we were talking about yesterday, nursing home charges. We got an email in from Francis who says, on the subject of nursing home charges, they have a sin to answer for. My dad was in a nursing home for the last months of his life and it was definitely the worst six months of his life. The care was not to the standard of care he had in his own home. He was high depending and had to be turned every two hours, which would not happen without me asking for it to be done. He was charged €80 a month for social activities, which he could not do. I know the way things were run as I was with him from 9.30am until late at night. It broke my heart to leave him alone. When he was not well, I had to insist on a GP service to see. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. 
Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Oh my God, Michael, I could tell you so much. But all I will say is that for over 1,267 euros a month, it is just a disgrace that our loved ones have to go through this awful time at the ending of their lives. Indeed, uh, and hopefully that has stopped. I know we've been hearing uh, about uh, some of uh, the problems uh, that Imelda Munster has been raising and uh, the response to them. Uh, that type of sharp practice should be ruled out at this stage and that type of charging for social activities when you can't participate in them and so on uh, should not be taking place as we speak. Uh, just going back uh, to the other caller uh, who's uh, living with somebody with uh, dementia in uh, their home and caring for them themselves. As I said, the Alzheimer's Society of Ireland does uh, offer services and support and you can contact them through their national helpline which is 1-800-341-341 That's 1-800-341-341 Okay, we were also discussing yesterday, Michael, the situation in schools and the problems in in getting substitute teachers. And we had a phone call from Mary in County Meath and she makes a comment in relation to how tough it can be to actually get a place to train to become a teacher. She says, I've great sympathy for children who have no teachers, but I know of a person who had an honours arts degree, had excellent points, and may I add an A in honours Irish, but she was not accepted for her master's in education to go on, in other words, to teach. And this person was a very good character. And I feel it is a problem in the education system. And instead of whinging now about lack of teachers, maybe the government should turn their attention to how the the number of places when it comes to teacher training and accepting people in. Um, Another listener was in touch about traffic wardens. Uh, I live in County Dublin and our traffic wardens, they're like lighting Michael, Michael giving out the fines. Even if the meter is down, why should you have to go looking for a meter uh, and then rush back because you might be afraid you'll have a ticket in the meantime. Mm, well, you have to pay for your parking. If you don't, you're going to face a, a fine. If the meter is down, you're supposed to pay at uh, the nearest available meter and uh, the wardens are supposed to take that into account and I'm sure give you uh, some extra time to come back. Uh, I, I'm not sure. We all hate paying for parking. We hate it more if our parking runs out or if we didn't know that it was paid parking and we get a fine but we hate getting fines. Uh, But I'm not sure as much as we dislike the work that wardens do, that the wardens uh, deserve uh, to be treated the way we heard they're treated on the programme yesterday. Oh, shocking, Michael. Mm. Absolutely. I couldn't believe to think that some, like, you Mm. know, not only like, shoot you. Like spat at and yeah. 
punched and all sorts. I mean, it wouldn't pay you to, mm. to be treated like that, would it? They've done it. They've a job to do, like us all. Mm. On yes. worse abuse than radio presenters get. <laughs> on the nurses' strike, Seamus from Drogheda had phoned in, and Seamus says that he feels the government have brought this on themselves. That they've caved in in relation to other public service pay, and it's only a matter of time if they give in to the nurses that there'll be another group lining up looking for money and he says where are we going to get the money to pay everybody and that's the question that people should be asking okay Uh, another listener was in touch mary just in relation to the nurses strike and says that she really thought that yesterday there might be some resolution that they seem to be talking for hours and hours and days and days and she says why can there be no coming together and some kind of deal done? Well the government says because it'll cost 300 million the nurses say because uh, they're underpaid, overworked and understaffed. Sean says that he is very supportive of the nurses, that he feels that they have been threatening a strike for a long time and that the government knew that this was coming. But the government has not responded adequately to the grievances of nurses, which he feels are genuine grievances and you only have to be at hospitals for any reason to see the hard work that nurses do. Well, that's true. The last part of that is most certainly true. They do sterling work uh, as everybody who's uh, been a a patient in hospitals will testify. Uh, We had Seamus Brompton talk in touch and Seamus nearly contacts us every day about Brexit, Michael. He definitely has his finger on the pulse and he's just wondering, will Theresa May be able to deliver today? Will she come up with an alternative to the backstop? And then more importantly, will that be accepted by the EU? Maybe at the last hour we'll get some kind of agreement. Don't you just love an optimist? <laughs> thanks for that and uh, thanks Marie and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. Now we'll go to uh, another story because uh, yesterday at uh, the Central Criminal Court, uh, 24-year-old Joseph Hillen was jailed for six years for killing a taxi driver in Dundalk. Martin Mulligan lost his life on the 28th of September. Owen Reynolds, who's a reporter in the Central Criminal Court, was on the phone earlier on today to tell me about the emotional scenes that he witnessed outside of uh, the court in Dublin. Yeah, yesterday we had the sentencing for Mr. Joseph Hillen, the 24-year-old who was convicted of the manslaughter of 53-year-old Martin Mulligan in sept- uh, September 28, 2015. Uh, he was sentenced yesterday by Justice Eileen Creedon to seven years with the final year suspended on grounds that he be of good behaviour and keep and that he behaved with probation services. The family of Mr Mulligan, um, well, they wept when the sentence was read out and outside uh, they said that they were devastated. His daughter, Shauna, said the justice system has really failed us. It's so unfair that you could take somebody's life and not really pay the price for it. His other daughter, Shauna, said the family is devastated and she felt it was unfair that Helen's account of what happened on the night her father died was taken as gospel, while her father obviously wasn't there to give his side of what happened. Um, Mr Mulligan's wife, Grania, was also there and she said it felt as though her family had been given a life sentence. She described her husband as kind and funny and a great family man, a great father, a great husband, great sibling. Um, but yet they were 
the family was quite angry that he received what is now a six-year sentence backdated for uh, back to uh, I think May 2017. So. And, and they imparted the real personal pain uh, that they've been feeling, uh, how four Christmases have passed, uh, how Martin's grandson uh, is missing his grandfather, uh, and indeed all of the family, uh, none less uh, than his wife, Gronia, as you say, uh, his uh, two daughters uh, giving impact statements uh, to the court previously as well. But I, I take it the big issue that the family has with the decision is that the judge highlighted how the jury accepted that uh, this man who was responsible for Martin Mulligan's death, uh, Joseph Hillen, uh, was acting in self-defence. Yeah, the decision by the jury was uh, that he was not guilty of murder and guilty of manslaughter. And the, 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 um, the way that the judge outlined to the jury how they should come about their verdict is that if they believe that Joseph Hillen thought he was acting in self-defence when he stabbed Martin Mulligan, but in the jury's eyes, he, this force that he used was excessive, then they should find him gu- not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. So that means that Joseph Hillen believed he was acting in self-defence. Um, and, and that's what the jury's verdict means, and that is uh, the, uh, the basis on which the judge made her, her uh, sentence. And this goes back to the story that Hillen uh, offered to the court, which was uh, that he came across Martin Mulligan illegally dumping rubbish. Uh, there was an altercation and Martin Mulligan pulled a knife on him, which he, he managed to flip, uh, as he put it, uh, and uh, that resulted in the death of Mr Mulligan. Yes, exactly. That is how Joseph Hillen described it. Now, Joseph Hillen initially to Gerdy, uh denied all knowledge of Martin Mulligan and what happened to Martin Mulligan. Um, He was linked to the crime by DNA evidence, and in the summer before his trial, he came forward and made a voluntary statement to Gardaí in which he outlined his involvement. And it is, as you say, that he felt that he he got into an altercation with Mr Mulligan over what he believed was illegal dumping. And then during that altercation, Mr Mulligan pulled a knife on him. He flipped it. He, He said he was being struck on the top of the head while he had the knife in his hand. And he used the knife, jabbed out twice, as he put it. And those two jabs, resulted in the fatal injury to Mr Mulligan. And that's how it's recorded now as such, something that the family not only refutes, uh, but feels is justice denied. In fact, uh, I gather they feel that it's an injustice. Yes, I think during the trial, uh, Grania Mulligan, Martin's wife, did say that Mr Mulligan would sometimes carry a knife in his truck, in his coal truck that he used, which he, she described it as a much smaller knife um, that would simply she, he would use for cutting open uh, bags of coal, not the kind of knife that was used in this incident. Um, so the family refutes that he, w- he would have had a knife in his coal truck and also um, that uh, he would have been illegally dumping rubbish. And that's Owen Reynolds, who's a news reporter working at uh, the Central Criminal Court, speaking to me before we came on air today. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk again about uh, Brexit and uh, the votes, whichever amendments are to be voted on this evening in the House of Commons, uh, this time with Fine Gael MEP Mairead McGuinness, who's the Vice President of the European Parliament. Good morning to you, Mairead, and thanks, as always, for joining us here on the programme this morning. We've been talking, uh, I think, as most media outlets have in general about two particular amendments, uh, Yvette Cooper, 
Coopers, uh, which would postpone Brexit for up to nine months. That's expected to fail. Uh, there is a lot of speculation then around uh, the other amendment, which is being tabled by Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of uh, the Backbench 1922 committee, and would call for alternative arrangements to avoid a hard border to the backstop. Uh, And this seems to have uh, the support of Theresa May, who's instructed Tories uh, to vote in favour of uh, that amendment. Does that come as a surprise to you? Well, I suppose I'm not surprised by anything anymore, and and more is a pity. Um, I think we had expected to be in a better place in terms of uh, the UK's withdrawing from the European Union at this stage. Yes, we're still going to be watching a major debate starting shortly in the House of Commons and then these votes. And I think what we're not clear on is the sequence of voting because it will be the Speaker who will decide, or indeed the numbers uh, of uh, actual um, Mm. proposals and amendments that he will allow a debate and a vote on. In terms of uh, the Prime Minister supporting this alternative or wording to that effect to the backstop, I think it was very clear from the Deputy um, EU negotiator yesterday, Sabine Veyand, that all of these would have been talked through in the negotiations, which lasted quite a long number of months. Mm. And the British were part of those negotiations. So I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know uh, what other form of words would work and give the same result as the backstop, which both parties have agreed to at this stage. Mm. Uh, and I don't have any wisdom on that at all. And I'm not. Well, nobody sure does. And this is. House of Commons has the wisdom. Yeah, well, uh, I don't know uh, if uh, there's $64,000 or euros or if there's enough money in the world to answer that question as we speak. And it may take many years uh, to come up with uh, an answer that. Uh, ticks all the boxes. So if Mrs. May comes back uh, to the European negotiators and says, can't do it with the backstop, what then? Well, indeed, what then? I think, again, going back to the clear words yesterday uh, from the negotiators, from the Commission, from Mm. all of the member states have said, look, we spent a lot of time with you Mm. agreeing to a backstop, which in fact was the um, structure and wording that the UK wanted, because the proposal that is in the withdrawal agreement was at the behest of what Theresa May herself requested, Mm. an all-UK-wide backstop. So I think it is rather difficult to comprehend how now she would be urging her party members to support um, something which she obviously uh, didn't think of or wasn't able to negotiate at the time or thinks it should be better because in all of her utterance today, she has been saying as Prime Minister that the deal on the table is the only deal, that the backstop is necessary for all the reasons we know. So it's hard to read what her thinking is. It's also going to be interesting to see what the outcome of that vote will be because as I understand it, some of our hardline Brexiteers would Mm. not support what's on the table. So again, you know, while she may be urging support for it, maybe she's doing it for reasons which you and I cannot comprehend and that it might not get the support of the House. And I think that's going to be the interesting thing yet again. We've been through this a few weeks back when the House of Commons voted and we thought we would see clarity. And we didn't. And I think at least that's my best guess after this evening's debate and votes that we are not likely to see any greater clarity um, and that things will drift towards uh, the end date of the the March uh, the 29th. So I think that we are still in that huge period of uncertainty. Mm. And I think as a result, a lot of people are quite anxious, not just in Ireland, but everywhere to see what exactly the UK will do next. So is it that whilst... There may be speculation that Mrs. May could go back to Europe with an unreasonable deal. 
uh, an unrealistic deal proposal uh, that that would uh, be wishful thinking uh, that it's not even going to be as good as that well i i think the there may be there may be nothing to offer in other words well, I think the European Union has been very clear that we did the deal and this mm. is the best possible, which was agreed by the Prime Minister. So I, I find it hard to uh, figure out how she would come back and say, look, I want something different to what I actually proposed the last time because I can't get my party to unite behind me because that is the crux of all of this. It's not so much the House of Commons uniting, it's that the Tory party itself is, mm. is being torn apart by Brexit, which was the case before the referendum and unfortunately remains the case. So I, I, I really have great difficulty trying to understand so, what... Yeah. No, no deal. Hard border. Well, I mean, these are the, these are the possibilities at the moment because mm. legally, as you know, uh, the, the law in the United Kingdom states that they will leave on that date in March unless something changes. And I think we all know that that is the case. Mm. Um, yet, yet when people talk, and I talked to, to many people even yesterday uh, at commission level, that I, I think there is still a belief that a deal will be done. Um, I think for, for lots of businesses and individuals, you know, the, the anxiety rises with every day that we don't have clarity. Mm. And should, should, should we not swallow our pride, though, and drop the backstop? Uh, I mean, if we, it seems, from what you're saying, as things stand, if we don't drop the backstop to avoid a hard border... We're going to end up with a hard border. Well, I would have actually asked the United Kingdom to swallow its pride and to ask the British Prime Minister to be mindful of what she negotiated in good faith with the European mm. Union, conscious as she was about the Good Friday Agreement and how we all want to maintain all that it has created and the, the, the freedom and flexibility of an invisible border. Mm. Um, and I think the, the, other, the option you posed there is, is not realistic and cannot happen because the European Union has negotiated in good faith. Uh, at this stage, and this is where people have got, I suppose, to hold our nerve in the face of uncertainty, um, we have a deal. It was agreed with the UK. It was not a coercive deal. It was absolutely signed up to by the British Prime Minister. She is in difficulty trying to persuade the House of Commons to support it. The backstop has become the issue for her party in particular. I mean, the Yvette Cooper Amendment is, you know, urging the House uh, not to leave with a no deal, as you've mm. proposed there, you know, saying that that would not be acceptable and indeed would like to see the whole thing postponed until the end of this year. Now, that has complications, and I don't think that it may get the full support of the House either. So we might emerge with a lot of votes which... Don't give us clarity. Don't give us a signpost. The only thing that gives us a clear signpost is the deal that's on the table. And I would hope that the Prime Minister is using this time to try and persuade her colleagues to sign up to the deal that's on the table, even though she has said she would urge them to support that amendment we've just discussed, mm. that perhaps in her manoeuvrings, what she's trying to get them to come back to is a place she's starting from, which is the deal on the table. But look, yeah. are, are there twi- is it possible that there's 26 countries who'll turn around and say, how did we end up in the middle of Anglo-Irish relations or bad relations uh, and uh, the 800-year dispute that has been going on on these islands? Uh, and that is a result of Irish pride and British pride uh, we're going to end up in this doomsday scenario, which is completely unnecessary because the Irish are telling the British it's unnecessary to insist on dropping the backstop because it'll never 
be needed and the British are telling the Irish that it's unnecessary to insist on a backstop because a trade deal will be done. Yet, we have this argument going on about a backstop or, to put that another way, we have this argument going on about avoiding a hard border which could very well result in causing a hard border. Well, oh, oh, that it was so simple. And I don't think this is simply about Ireland and the United Kingdom. It is about the European Union and the United Kingdom. And I think all the commitments on the backstop were entered into by the European Union with the United Kingdom because we all have uh, things we want to protect and preserve. From the European Union side, because of the history and geography of Northern Ireland and Europe's involvement in supporting the peace process, wants to make sure that that Good Friday Agreement remains intact. And therefore, it isn't simply that they're watching, uh, you know, what's happening Mm. between Ireland and the United Kingdom. And I think there have been, you know, there's a lot of things floating in social media that I think sometimes you're better turn a blind eye to and focus on, you know, what we're trying to do now, which is um, watch the House of Commons, debate what's on the table, hope that they will come to a conclusion that, in fact, the backstop is the best possible arrangement because the amendment it talks about this alternative amendment talks about other ways but the other ways were all talked through and in the negotiations the conclusion was that the wording of the backstop is what will work if it's needed but really we should you know deal with this withdrawal agreement and get on to discussing the future i, I mean i've met with mm. um british colleagues here who are you know want part of the brexit movement and I've actually pleaded with them to say, look, what is it that they are so unsecure about? Why do they not trust their own abilities to negotiate a future relationship which would avoid the need for the backstop and and just get down to business? And and again, when we are at this stage, to some extent, we are like everyone else. We are watching the House of Commons. We cannot influence or interfere. We just have to Mm. listen to the debates carefully and try and analyse the votes thereafter. Okay, but... But it is a question of trust or lack of trust or pride uh, uh, on both sides, isn't it? I, I, no, I, I wouldn't say pride. I, I'm, I'm not so sure that pride uh, arises. Because as you, but, but I mean, as you say, it's not necessary. I mean, this backstop should never be needed. So why are we worried about it? Uh, we're worried about it because we don't trust the British. Whether that's a question of pride or lack of trust, uh, I don't know. But uh, the British don't trust also Europe uh, and there is that pride uh, and the idea of sovereignty and that Northern Ireland is part of a sovereign United Kingdom and so on. Uh, And these are the problems that are fundamental to this rather than the issue of striking a deal. Well, funny enough, given all that's happened um, and I take a flip view of what you're saying, it seems to me that the necessity for the backstop is strengthened by the uncertainty that prevails within the United Kingdom system because it gives us something to fall back on if we cannot negotiate a future trade relationship. And indeed, as I say, the uncertainty and the constant debate and these votes that will come, you know, they really, in in one sense, have cemented for me the need to have this uh, insurance policy Mm. and for people of good faith to understand why it's necessary and to take that step forward. We are less than 60 days towards mm. the, the exit. Um, what I find interesting as well is there are colleagues who think that this is a trap, that the European Union is really trying to trap uh, mm. the United Kingdom inside. Trust. And honestly, I, I've really said that is not the case. Um, what I get an impression of when I talk to colleagues here is 
a growing sense of we need the United Kingdom to leave in an orderly way so that we both can get on with our business because there's lots of other things that are big challenges for both Europe and the United Kingdom and the Brexit saga because it takes up so much political time and oxygen is you know diverting attention away from many other issues so I get no sense in which there are people in this house saying gosh we should press this because it's a way of trapping the United Kingdom in. If anything, I feel it is quite the opposite at the moment. And, you know, this week uh, we're in session here in Brussels and tomorrow there will be a debate in the Parliament here about the outcome of those votes. And I think that will be interesting to see how uh, they are received and perceived by members of this House who have been fully supportive of the withdrawal agreement and every particular part of it, from citizens' rights to the budget to the Irish question. Yeah, well, it's going to be a very interesting 24 hours, uh, to say the least, uh, but uh, we leave it there for the moment, and thank you, as always, for joining us. Finnegale MEP, Mairead McGuinness's Vice President of the European Parliament. Michael Reed on LMFM. After eight hours of uh, talks, uh, the Labour Court uh, will today say whether it believes uh, there is any basis for a formal intervention in uh, the nurses' strike, which is set to commence at eight o'clock tomorrow morning and run for 24 hours until eight o'clock on Thursday morning. Let's uh, talk about this uh, with Independent TD for Mead West, Patrick Tobin, who's uh, the chair of the Save Navin Hospital campaign and founder of a political party he hopes to establish by the name of Aon2. Good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Thank you very much. Uh, the government says it hasn't got the 300 million this would cost. Uh, the nurses say they're underpaid, overworked and understaffed. Uh, which side does Aon2 side with? Well, first of all, AIM2 is with the side of the nurses, uh, 100%. Um, it is, it's an incredible first start uh, that the government are acting in this, in this way. First of all, there's a number of key issues that have to be dealt with. Many nurses in this country are not able to uh, uh, function economically, pay for the bills that they're experiencing currently due to the fact that many of the costs of living are increasing at a rate. And I said this over a number of years, if the government allow, for example, the housing crisis to continue and rents to spiral, they're going to create industrial relations problems for themselves in the future. Because many public servants are very, finding it very hard to actually live in the environments, the areas in which they're working because of the price of housing uh, and rents. But even if you weren't interested in the, the nurses' income or their ability to function at home or, or to live, you just look at the state of the health service. Now, the health service is in major uh, difficulties currently because we don't have enough nurses to fill the capacity that's necessary right across the health service. And the reason we don't is because it's been increasingly difficult to recruit and retain nurses in those positions. And why? Because we know that the market rates and conditions for nurses internationally are better than they are in, in Ireland. Now, as someone's wage... Are there staffing, is, is, are there staffing issues in Navin? Um, there are staffing issues right across the health service. And no, but are, those, are, are, so are, there, are there significant significant issues in Navan or in Drogheda? The, I haven't been detailed specific issues mm. with regard to Navan. So, but we do know that right across the health service that they're having it really difficult to recruit and retain. And indeed, but there's been a real turnaround, do, hasn't there? Uh, I mean, if uh, the trolley count is anything to go by, uh, you're talking about two of uh, the most efficient hospitals in the country now. 
well, there has been uh, improvements with regards to Strada, and thank God for that. Mm. You know what I mean? And in Navin. And in Navin. In fairness, Navin's Dundalk is working like a, a dream. Why are people having their uh, operations cancelled and their uh, outpatient appointments cancelled and so on? Well, first of all, Navin did normally have decent numbers with regards to Charlie Kent. There was a spike uh, just about mm. a, a 18 months ago to about six months ago when we saw Charlie Kent uh, mm. go through the roof. And they saw but, that, yeah. but, but, but Michael, there's, there's 750,000 people waiting for hospital appointments in this country. Mm. Each one of those individuals has their their health reduced in quality as they're waiting. But how many, many of them have them cancelled tomorrow? Just, here's, here's the point. Many of them actually have to have more invasive health service delivered to them uh, in the end of the process, because they're, they're made wait so long. But this would make it worse. With, but, the, but the point is here, there is an international price for nurses, mm. and there's an international wage for nurses. In the same way, there's an international uh, wage for journalists, for engineers, uh, for, for doctors, for consultants. Now, you can have a choice. You can decide on a, on, on a, on a price or a wage to pay nurses, consultants, and doctors. And if it's lower than the international wage... You simply won't get the staff to fill the positions. And, you know, it, there's no point in, in, in talking about the 750,000 people who are in uh, waiting lists for, for uh, uh, hospital treatment and the 110,000 people who were on trolleys last year across the country. And then on the flip side, say, well, we're going to pay a wage that is lower than the international market price for these individuals. And so, therefore, we won't be able to fill the positions that are necessary to get to deliver the services so, uh, that we h- need. How would you solve this if uh, the estimated cost of €300 million is correct? Well, first of all, there's, there's about €100 million Euros, uh, that's wasted in this country with regards to payment of um, agency nurses and staff within the hospital service. So these are people who are really fulfilling exactly the same roles, but because the government can't actually employ these individuals on direct contract, mm. they source them through agency. But uh, you're, not, you're always going to need agency. People go sick, people go on maternity leave and so yeah, on. But, but, not but, to the extent but, 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 that you're talking about, so you may get some money there. But in, ter- in terms of solving this dispute tomorrow, how would you get $300 million? But First of all, first of all, Michael, we are in, in normal times. People will go sick, and, and people will uh, need to go on pregnancy uh, leave, and, and people will go on other types of leave. Ireland is a million miles away from normal times. We, we are talking about like the, the level of key medical personnel in our health service that are simply not there. Means the conditions then for those who are there are absolutely. Uh, atrocious. The people who are there are carrying the weight on their shoulders uh, because the, the place is so understaffed. And I've talked to doctors and nurses and consultants, and they've told me that they can't actually deliver their treatment to the same rate and level as they need to. And as a result, they're far more likely to make mistakes. And this country is a high litigation country. So, so when mistakes are made, it becomes very, very costly and, and insurance rates uh, then have to be increased uh, for those individuals. And it's a vicious circle. What we need to do is to staff and to make sure the capacity in beds is in the hospitals. If they are there, then we'll be able to bring down those waiting lists and to make sure that people are not on trolleys. 300 people die in this country every year. In what time frame, though? Well, first of all, you're you're talking about a country currently that's now paying 1.7 billion euros for a Hmm. children's hospital that should have cost about 600 million euros. But if you were negotiating on behalf of uh, the INMO, uh, what would you say would be success in terms of coming back uh, to your members with uh, a proposal to stop this crisis? My view would be it would be illogical 
for a government to declare in advance, or even a, a, a political party, to declare in advance exactly what the cost of this uh, pay rise would be. Because if they did that, they would be giving away any negotiation space uh, that they had. But they do need to sit down with uh, the nurses, and they do need to make sure there's a pay increase that allows for nurses to function one, within all the cost of living that they experience, and two, that is attractive enough to bring those nurses that we have gone to great expense to educate back from Australia, Canada, and and, mm. and London. Well, they're the third best-paid nurses in the world, aren't they? But first of all, if you look at Dublin, for example, it's one of the most expensive cities in the planet to live in also. Um, and it, it's really, like, the, the, the wage that you receive is directly related to the cost that you're dealing with. There's no point in, in comparing a nurse's wage here in Ireland and a nurse's wage in, in, in South Africa or uh, in, in China, etc. There, there are different costs of living for these people to deal with. And people are voting with their feet. If the wage was like so attractive, do you not think that Irish nurses wouldn't be fleeing the country at the rate they're fleeing? Okay, uh, well, we'll uh, face into this uh, strike uh, tomorrow. It seems as though there's little prospect of uh, a resolution. Uh, whilst you're with us and whilst you've uh, announced uh, the name of uh, the political party uh, that you hope uh, to have registered and established, is there any mention of AIM2 in the Mead Chronicle this week? Um, the Mead Chronicle this week is going to print at, I believe, um, midday today uh, okay. for the week. So, so hopefully there, may, it'll, there, it'll, there, there may be. I, did you I contact them? The Chron- I did contact oh, the Mead okay. Chronicle this morning. So okay. it is, I, I'll, I'll be honest. Is with that you, because the, it was in three national newspapers and that the, you announced it on Twitter and in Belfast? Have you forgotten your roots, Peter Tobin? Well, no, not, not at all. No men- no men- very, I don't I'm, think you contacted LMFM about it, your local radio station. Aislam, now, I would not forget the pots that I was boiled in in any way at all. And I'll tell you, the, the, the name was leaked from the Electoral Commission in the north of Ireland to the, the national newspapers. Leaked? Uh, and uh, Peter Tobin told the Irish Times, ain't two means unity and consent. Well, that doesn't first, sound like a leak. It sounds I, like you first, were talking to Jennifer all, Bray. If you look, if you look at the, um, the, the post that I made on Twitter yesterday, it comes after the fact that the Electoral Commission in the north of Ireland published the name uh, in the uh, in 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 their register, and therefore we the the name was actually in existence on Twitter before we published it. At the okay, but does that mean that going forward, people in Meath who wish to learn about Peter Tobin's political party, which uh, according to the Irish Times and the Irish Examiner and the Irish Independent is called Dane too, uh, that they need to read national newspapers? Is it rather than relying on local media? No, no. First of all, the information that I gave to the tut, local tut. media was given on oh, tut, a timely tut. basis before they were published as well. And listen, there's nothing in this. I would never forget the pot that I was boiled in. I'm a meat man first and foremost. And absolutely, the people that I've worked with in the media, uh, in meat and in loud, uh, I'll make sure that we, we make sure that they have the information uh, as well. But unfortunately, the Electoral Commission in the North Barons decided that they would publish the name before we published it. And as a result, there was a number of journalists who were actually in contact with them on a weekly basis, and when they got the information, they simply came to us and uh, we indicated uh, what it was about. So AIM2, just for people who don't know, is obviously it's an Irish word. It means unity and it means agreement. Uh, and it's, we launched it, obviously, uh, last night on the back of uh, that leak from the Electoral Commission. But we want to make sure that we build 
uh, an Ireland which uh, unites the people of Ireland, north and south. We believe that you know a proper. Did you steal uh, the idea from? Did you steal the idea from Sinn Fein? No, we didn't steal the idea. You know, Jennifer Bray's article. Uh, you were talking to her, as I said earlier on. Uh, she says uh, that well, it's I wasn't uh, talking to Jennifer Bray. Well, uh, we'll she, she has you in quotation uh, uh, <laughs> and saying, uh, "Mr. Tobin told the Irish Times that it means unity consent." But she also says it's uh, the name of a uh, Sinn Fein strategy group for cross-border integration. Are you sure you didn't steal the idea? First of all, first of all, there's no a word by definition has been used by other people. No, the idea so, of using that so, word. So, 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 for example, the Labour Party, are we saying that the Labour Party, before they decided to use the name, didn't have the word, the word Labour wasn't in existence and used before by other people? The name Sinn Féin, for God's sakes, comes from a newspaper that actually originated in Oldcastle uh, uh, in 1905. Political, and Fianna Fáil was a name that was used actually by the, the, the Defence Forces and the volunteers before Fianna Fáil came into existence. It, I'll tell you something, Michael. If you spend time looking for a name <clears throat> that nobody has used previously, that's obviously easy to say with regards to people who are non-Irish speakers and encapsulates exactly the, the culture that you want to breed of unity, respect and agreement uh, you'll be you'll be spending a long time looking for that word. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll be hearing "ain't too" many times over in uh, the coming weeks, years, and decades, for that matter. And uh, there's obviously an awful lot of momentum behind uh, your movement. Thanks for joining us and talking to us this morning, as always. That is uh, Padder Tobin, who's an independent TD, establishing "ain't too" and founder uh, of uh, that movement and uh, the chair of uh, the Save Navin Hospital Committee. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Ken Bogan of Drogheda Garda Station joins us for the report this week, and we begin in Dundalk with a burglary at Market Street. Yes, good morning, Michael. Um, my colleagues in Dundalk are investigating a burglary that occurred on Market Street in Dundalk on Wednesday the 23rd of January um, the homeowner in question left the house at 1.30pm and returned later on that evening to find the front door had been forced and a sum of cash was taken from inside the house this is quite a busy location as local uh, locals will be aware it's on Market Street next to the Credit Union so we're asking anyone who was in the area at that time be it taxi drivers or people availing of the service in the area if they observed anything strange at that location to contact my colleagues at Dundalk Guard Station now to a uh, theft of a, a jeep. This happened last Friday, was it in Greenore? That's right. Yes, in Greenore on Euston Street in Greenore between mid on the twenty fifth between midnight and six a.m. Um, the owner parked the vehicle up for the night, and um, it's a Wicklow registered blue Toyota Land Cruiser. Um, so we're asking anyone who observed that. Uh, vehicle leaving the vicinity or in around Carlingford or Dundalk Roads to contact my colleagues at uh, Carlingford or indeed Dundalk Garda Station. Another stolen vehicle to report on next. Uh, this time it's a black Range Rover. It was taken in Navan in the middle of na- last week. That's correct. On the 23rd of January, that's a Wednesday, at the Boyne Road in Navan. So that's the road leading out of town along the ramparts um, between 11.30pm and 8 30 a.m. the next morning. The owner awoke to discover the vehicle was gone. It's a Meath registered black 151 Range Rover. Um, and we, we've asked people to, if they observe this vehicle in the area, or indeed the vehicle may be on the back of a tow truck, sometimes vehicles are stolen in that manner to report 
any observations to my colleagues at NAVN, please. Okay, as you say, that was last Wednesday. We've another crime in NAVN, which happened the following day on the Thursday. A very different crime, though. This was a robbery at uh, bookmakers. Yes, a very serious incident, Michael, and one quite distressing for those involved. A male on the 24th of January, a male entered the Boyle Sports um, betting shop attached to Navin Shopping Centre at Johnstown at 9.15pm. He produced what appeared to be a firearm to staff and the male subsequently left with a sum of cash. As I said, this is a very distressing incident for all the staff and customers involved. Um, The description of the um, male is dark clothing, his face was partially covered with a black scarf and he was carrying a white bag and he's also described as having a foreign accent. So, again, that's quite a busy location, the shopping centre. There are a lot of activity and housing in the area. So if anyone in that area was in close to the shopping centre and observed anyone acting suspiciously prior to that time or indeed running from the location, um, my colleagues in Navin would be grateful for their assistance. Okay, so I'm sure that business would as well. Uh, we'll stay in County Meath, but we move to Trim and a car broken into there on Friday of last week. That's correct. This happened on the afternoon um, of the 25th at uh, Newton Road and Trim, um, Quite a brazen act this. It's a grey Hyundai i40 was parked on the opposite Marcy's public house. Uh, The owner left the vehicle at 3.30 and returned at 4.30 and the rear window of the car had been completely smashed and a handbag taken from the rear passenger cabin containing a sum of cash. So as I said, it's a very central location and at a busy, busy period of the afternoon. So if anyone was in trim at that time near that location, if they observed either the damage or someone acting suspiciously around this vehicle, uh, my colleagues in Trim would like to hear from them. And maybe a word of warning in there for all of us as well, in that if you leave items in cars, uh, if people see them, I'm sure uh, there's some people at least who are very quick to break the window and take them and all the problems that go alongside that. Uh, Before we go, more advice for people because uh, we're going into a cold spell and with that comes uh, some dangerous road conditions. Yes, just with January being January and heading into what's possibly going to be a very cold winter, I just want to offer some advice to your listeners in relation to keeping safe on the roads so with icy road conditions predicted it's, it's just to bear in mind that your only contact with the road is in fact your tyres so we'd ask people to check their tyre pressure and indeed the uh, thread depth of the tyre and not neglecting the spare which is a lot of people don't think of um, and to fully defrost all windows prior to commencing their journey um, and when doing so uh, we would ask people to pay particular attention to not leave vehicles turning over in the driveway while they're waiting for them to defrost there are a number of incidents each year where vehicles are stolen by um, because owners are leaving vehicles turning over while unattended heating um, up and defrosting heating words, up and yeah, defrosting yeah, yeah, basically yeah. and going back into the house to do other tasks it is an area that's being targeted and we are aware of it we'd ask homeowners and car owners just to be aware and all that advice and extra advice is available on the RSA website. Mm, your car might be warm and defrosted but it might, it might not be outside be your house. Yes. Yeah. Right. Some sound advice. Thank you indeed. Garda Kembogan of Drogheda Garda Station and uh, that uh, brings our programme to its conclusion today. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme by the way but as I say that's all we have time for today. Remember there'll be a podcast available on our website lmfm.ie this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing Maggie McGuire for researching and Chris Marine the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. 
break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.